0: In this segment, we'll experiment with the boundaries of storytelling, featuring some of our friends, mentors, and advisors. We'll share perspectives and reframe the narratives that fall on a spectrum. We'll have unfiltered conversations around life, business, and everything in between. Between the vantage point of a deep thinker and an atomic player. Between an objective mind and a subjective heart. Between the truth teller and the truth seeker between two sides of the coin. Wes K.O. is the co-founder of an edtech startup called Maven, which is an online platform that helps creators build and launch their own cohort-based courses. She's also a marketing expert who has led over 150 launches for Fortune 500 brands and startups. She was the co-creator and executive director of Seth Godin's Alt MBA. In the past, she's also led product and marketing at Flight, which was acquired by Snapchat, Bayer Essentials and Gap Inc. Wes, super excited to have you on our pod.
1: Excited to be here.
0: So I know you are a busy entrepreneur. So how's your day looking like today? I mean, is it all calendarized or do you have some white spaces as well?
1: Yeah, it's funny that you said, you know, it's Friday, so maybe I'd have a lighter morning. I thought so too, but of course something came up. So I think that's pretty common with startup life. But usually I try to block off my calendar. I try to block off my mornings until noon for deep work. And then noon through six or seven is meetings.
0: Oh boy, life of an entrepreneur. <laughs> so first question to you is that, how did you actually meet your co-founders of Maven? Is it like a close-knit group of uh, you know, Silicon Valley founders? Or how did you actually first meet your uh, co-founders?
1: My co-founder, Gagan Biani, and I actually went to high school together. We grew up in the same hometown in Fremont, California, about 45 minutes outside of San Francisco. He was a year younger. So we didn't really hang out or you know, spend a lot of time together, but we kind of knew of each other. And we went to college together too. And, and we kind of kept in touch every five years or so. We would we'd get coffee. And so last summer, Doggan reached out to me uh, after I hadn't heard... you know, We haven't talked in a while. And he said, Hey, I just got back from... Two years of traveling abroad after shutting down my last company, and I'm thinking about getting back into ed tech. I've been exploring cohort-based courses, and everyone that I talked to mentioned you. And so he told them, you know, I already know Wes, we're friends, I'm just going to shoot her a text. And um, yeah, so that's how we got back in touch. And we started shooting around some ideas you know, at first, he was helping me with my consulting business. I was you know, consulting, working with course creators, experts, you know, helping them build their courses at the time. And he was thinking about and trying to learn more about core-based courses. So I was giving him some advice on that. And as we started talking, it just became so obvious that, that our skill sets were a great match. And we were both really excited about the future core-based courses and their ability to really shake up what online education could be. And we eventually decided to work together. And then a couple months later, we found our third co-founder, Franz Bensali, who was the first engineer and first employee at Venmo, and then started an edtech company himself, sold it to Google and was at Google at the time. So we brought on Franz a couple months later.
0: Wow. So it's all connected, it seems. So like you already knew Gagan <laughs> from your school days as well, right? So I think um, uh, definitely you built the Alt-MBA from the ground up alongside your best, uh, best-selling author, Seth Gordon, grew it to thousands of students, alumni in 45 countries and 550 cities. That's a big deal, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's pretty incredible. I mean, I think especially considering that when Seth and I started the Alt-MBA at the time in, in 2015, it was really one of the first, if not the first mainstream popular cohort-based course there were corporate courses that were kind of on the fringe but that was one of the major ones that really proved out the concept that this format of live learning with a group of like-minded people with start and end dates uh where you're you know going through a course whether it's 3 days, 3 weeks, 3 months but essentially learning in a much more interactive way that that format could work so once we discovered that we were onto something It was all about how do we get in front of more students who would be glad to find out that we exist and excited about this new form of learning. And so a lot of my efforts were on scaling, growth, marketing, sales. And what was exciting about that was after building up the Alt-MBA to thousands of students, I thought, was there something about the Alt-MBA specifically that made it all work? Or was this something that we could repeat and replicate? with other creators, other founders, other industries, verticals. And that, that idea was really, really exciting for me. So I left the MBA and started working directly with creators. And one of my first clients was Professor Scott Galloway from NYU Stern, uh, from the Pivot Podcast. And uh, he runs a company called Section 4. So I worked with him and, and his founding team to design their sprint and grow it and build it up I also worked with the co-founders of Morning Brew, Alex Lieberman and Austin Reef. I worked with uh, David Perel from Rite of Passage, Tiago Forte from Build the Second Brain. So through these experiences, I realized that there was something really special about core-based learning, that creators love teaching via core-based courses and love the fact that this was an amazing revenue stream and many times overnight, their biggest revenue stream. And then on the other side of the spectrum, learners, students also really loved taking core-based courses that, you know, most people were used to MOOCs, massive open online courses. So Udemy, Skillshare, LinkedIn learning, where it's basically self-paced, a bunch of videos that you watch, there's no community. And I think there's just so much appetite now from what I've seen with learners being excited that, hey, there's now this way where I can meet other people, other designers, other founders, other operators, other So on the learner side, a lot of working professionals were excited that they could take courses with fellow designers, fellow founders, fellow VCs on a range of topics to upskill their skill set and retool and continue improving their craft. So on the instructor side and the learner side, there was a lot of excitement.
0: So I think um, I was lucky enough to um, attend a cohort based course this year as well at OnDeck. So I totally vouch (laughs) vouch for what you're saying. So what's your spiky point of view, as you say, on the future of education, content curation and marketing, especially in the Web 3.0? Do you see any upcoming disruptions in 2021 and beyond?
1: Yeah. So I think whether cohort-based courses are going to replace higher education is something that is on a lot of people's minds. And I can see both sides of the argument. My spiky point of view is that there's a lot of space in education. There's a lot of room for innovation. And the learner, the student is ultimately the person who wins. So I don't think that higher education is going anywhere because college, university, it serves the purpose of signaling still, right? Like even if we remove the knowledge that you learn in college and look at it purely from a credentialing perspective, there are still a lot of jobs that say four-year degree required or bachelor degree required. Um, And so I understand that people are still going to want to go to college to make it past these gatekeepers. But on the other end, I think with the internet, there's so much more opportunity to show your work. So instead of saying that I went to advertising school, if you created a mock-up of an ad a week and you posted it on Twitter or you posted it on Instagram, a future employer is going to be much more excited to see your proof of work and these proof points that you know how to design, that you are excited about the field, that you understand the nuances of color, balance, composition, right? Like you can show your work so much more easily than you could 5 or even 10 years ago. So, whether it's a Twitter following that you've grown, Instagram for something that's a bit more visual, or a blog that you write, medium articles that you write, pieces that you've published, side projects that you've launched, these are all ways that you can show your work. And I think that's really exciting and fits really well into the direction that we're going in with core-based courses where you can, you know, instead of just learning in college and graduating in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years that you're working, just, you know, not continuing to learn, instead of doing that, you now have the opportunity with core-based courses to continue sharpening your craft and to learn from operators with real-world experience that's relevant, that's timely, that's market-based. So for example, instead of, you know, if you're a product manager, you know, instead of just cobbling together resources, watching YouTube videos, reading medium articles, and trying to decipher what's junk versus what actually is credible, you can take a course from someone like Lenny Ruchitsky. Lenny was an early product manager at Airbnb. He has a Maven course on uh, product management. And so Lenny has distilled all of his years of wisdom, his hard-earned lessons of product management into this three-week course where he teaches you four to five principles of what it takes to be a great product manager. So you can learn from someone like Lenny who has real world experience. And in the meantime, you're meeting a hundred other product managers in tech, in different industries, in different phases of their career. And so it's this amazing networking opportunity. So you're not only learning from Lenny, you're also learning from your peers who have a lot to share and a lot to talk about in terms of trading experiences and, and sharing what you're learning.
0: I'm just curious because there's a lot of saying, at least on the tutor land, right? Uh, Silicon Valley has moved to the cloud, especially in the SaaS ecosystem as well. So uh, do you see in the Valley ecosystem or in the East Coast, some of the universities contemplating that some of their courses may be totally like digitally driven or maybe new universities can crop up in 2021 beyond micro universities that could be all, you know, somewhere running in the cloud and could be cohort driven as well? Some thoughts on those
1: areas? I think the exciting thing about what EdTech is looking like and and the future of education is that there's so much room for innovation. Even with our core based courses, we work directly with creators. And so a lot of these creators are not traditional professors. They are what we call digitally native professors. People have built an audience, people have great subject matter expertise, great credibility, but are not interested in being a part of this older university system. So with a lot of these digitally native professors, what's so fascinating is that creators by nature are innovative. They're inventive. They love exploring and experimenting and breaking rules and and coming up with their own rules. And so I teach a three-week course on how to build a core-based course, which is a little bit meta, I know. But what's so exciting about that is every time I teach this course, the creators and instructors that come out of it always mix up the things that we teach them and they mix and match and they, they do their own thing, right? We tell them here's the box because it's hard to step out of the box. If you don't even know where the box is, right? You kind of need some understanding of what are the fundamentals, but once they know the fundamentals, they're so good at breaking the rules in the best ways possible to serve their audience, to serve their topic. So one good example is Julian Shapiro and Saul Bloom. Julian runs a a marketing agency. He has a huge social following and we had, you know, told them that hey, a lot of the core-based courses nowadays are around two to three weeks. So, you know, you can do it longer, you can do it shorter, but just on average, if you want a place to start, that's a decent place to start. And Saul Hill and Julian decided to make their course two to three days. So dramatically shorter. And when I heard that, I thought, okay, amazing. Like, let's try it. Let's see how it goes. And it turned out so great. Like people loved it. A lot of people loved how punchy it was, how condensed it was how much they got done in three days, you know, and, and sometimes with attention spans, like sometimes you don't want to do something that's too long. And so this three-day course ended up being perfect for their audience. And because of that, we then incorporated that lesson into our own curriculum, our own Maven curriculum to teach everyone else. Mm-hmm. And we told everyone else, hey guys, before we were, we had told you a couple of weeks was, you know, an average length, length of a course, but if you're interested, shorter courses also work really well. So now a bunch of other instructors are doing shorter courses and seeing really great results. So you see this cycle of creators inventing and mixing and matching and breaking the rules. Maven then is able to have a bird's eye view of how these creators are thinking about courses and then share those insights and share those lessons with everyone else. So the the rate of innovation is so fast, and I think that a lot of higher higher education institutions or You know, non traditional schools, whatever it may be, um, are going to benefit from this rate of innovation and just seeing how creators are uh, inventing newness and trying out different formats that, you know, you and I wouldn't even be able to think of.
0: That was an exciting point. I mean, like A B testing a bunch of formats early on and then realizing what works, what doesn't work, and what are the best practices, and then disseminating that to the wider audience as well, right? One of the questions that I was very curious about is that, Uh, Do you foresee that in the coming years, the young professors and various universities as well would be enamored by this particular format? Because if they have been always doing workshops and masterclasses, so if they foresee that Maven is trying to disrupt this particular educational gap, is there a possibility they can find a crack and just sneak in as well?
1: Yeah, for sure. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think most companies might say like, oh, you know, we're worried about that. But I actually think that that's great. I think the more people there are who are working on innovating for higher education, the faster that we're going to see better outcomes for students, better experiences for students. So I think it's great if higher education starts thinking about, hey, how can we better serve our audience who are now more digitally savvy, who you know have now, because of COVID, realized how much you could do online? And how can we be creative about thinking you know what has to happen in person what has to happen you know physically irl versus what things can we do online that actually save people time from commuting or save people the ability to be more flexible the the ability to have more convenient access yeah so i actually think that it's great that higher education might start exploring in these areas as well the other thing that i will mention too is that i think one thing to think about for anyone who's who's wanting to play in this area is that what worked in one format doesn't necessarily directly transpose into another so with moocs for example thinking you know back 10 15 years ago when the first moocs popped up it was a camera parked in the back of a lecture hall recording the professor right and that wasn't engaging for anyone like no one loved that right and so now you see video courses today on teachable on udemy on skillshare linkedin learning they're much more engaging than they were before because the self paced courses of today are designed to be for the format of learning online, right? So you have the, the instructor speaking to the camera, you might have cuts into something, screen shares of visuals, et cetera. It's not just that camera parked in the back of the room recording for an hour and a half without any edits. So I think, in the same way that even with self paced courses, you need to design for the actual medium and the use case, the same really applies for cohort based courses. So if you just tried taking a course curriculum, 14-week semester, and putting it entirely online, that's not necessarily a great experience. And I think we saw that when universities over COVID tried doing that. There were a lot of issues with students not necessarily getting the most out of their semester from instructors purely just turning on Zoom and assuming that students were going to pay attention and assuming that all the same variables that are in the classroom actually apply online. So One of the frameworks that I have that I call the state change method is really helpful here. So if you think about lecturing on Zoom for an hour and a half, your students are going to be bored out of their mind staring at a screen for that long. I mean, really, like even in a meeting that you and I are in, for a 30-minute meeting with your colleagues or an hour meeting, right? Or phone call, even then our minds might wander a little bit. So if you just imagine... Uh, your students taking a course, sitting, needing to focus and stare at a screen for so long while you monologue, you as the instructor. Obviously, there, you know, we can think of so many reasons why that's not going to work. And yet that is what the current state is, is instructors, professors monologuing for this amount of time. And so the framework that I, I created is called the state change method. And the state change method is basically every three to five minutes, at least, maybe more often, you punctuate your lectures with a state change of some sort. And a state change is basically anything that, that breaks that monologue. It could be um, asking students to unmute themselves to answer a question. It could be saying, hey, you know, here's a question, type your answer in the chat box. It could be switching from gallery view where we see everyone's faces you know, in a Brady Bunch-like grid to switching to slides or switching from slides back to gallery view so everyone can see each other. It might be having someone else speak. So if I'm the instructor and I'm speaking, it might be saying, you know, hey, having one of the coaches or having the moderator chime in or having a guest lecturer or putting people into breakout rooms, saying for the next five minutes, we're going to talk about this topic in small groups of three to four people. I'm going to put you into breakout rooms now, and we're going to come back and share out. So all of these are examples of state changes. And these state changes help your student feel engaged. They help your students stay awake. They help your student be alert with the material that you're teaching and feel like they are participating member of this course as opposed to just passively sitting there consuming content. And the reason why this is so important is if your student is just passively consuming content, then why are they in a live course in the first place? They should just do that on their own time, watching a teachable video or watching you know Udemy videos, right? So it's especially important with core-based courses and anything where there's a live component to think about, What are the things that you can only do live? And how can we make the best of our time together, whether it's 30 minutes, an hour, an hour and a half, two hours of a workshop, to focus on the things that we can do live? And those live components tend to be discussion, debate, role-playing, critiquing, live feedback, breakouts, guided exercises. And the amazing thing is that at the end of a core-based course, I've never heard students say, gosh, I wish there were more lecture, right? Like most people say, I wish there were more time to meet other students or I wish there were more time to work on this one project together or I wish there were more time to hear students kind of critiquing each other's work or the instructor critiquing someone's work live so that we could all learn from that. So the interactive parts are really what your students want. And I think that's a great insight to keep in mind for uh, whether it's higher education or you know other companies or whoever wants to kind of play in the space of core based learning to really think about that aspect.
0: Well, that is nice. So so in the future, I'm, I'm just curious, would Maven be interested to actually build, let's say, an AI engine as well that would be expecting or mapping out the interest level of the cohort students as well? For example, you get to know which are the students who are more active or which are the students who would be, you know, given a little bit of nudge here and there.
1: I think this idea of sentiment analysis is really interesting. So getting a sense of the sentiment of your audience. Are they feeling tired and bored? Are they starting to tune out? Or are they excited? Or are they confused? You know, those clues would be so useful for instructors. And I think even looking at physical, you know, traditional higher ed, there hasn't been a great way to know how your students are receiving your material. You know, one way is to look at people's faces and see if people are confused. But if you're lecturing to a couple hundred students in a lecture hall, it's still hard to know, right? And so I think the exciting thing about bringing learning online is that there are more tools and more ways for a student to potentially alert their instructor and say, hey, this is a little confusing for me. Can we slow down? You know, when I think back to a calculus class that I took, you know, freshman year of college, there were so many times when... I was confused, but I didn't want to raise my hand in front of, you know, the lecture hall of 800 people at UC Berkeley. And I just didn't raise my hand, you know, and I ended up falling further and further behind. I eventually got a C in that class. I ended up having to retake it and I retook it in a much smaller environment with only, I want to say seven to eight students. This is actually after I graduated and uh, was already working professional. Um, I decided to retake it in a UC Berkeley extension that was in San Francisco. And when there were only seven to eight people, there were so many more chances where I could raise my hand without feeling self-conscious and ask the professor for help and ended up getting an A in that class. So, you know, before I had spent all these years thinking I was bad at math or just bad at calculus. This was never something I was able to learn. And it turned out that the change in format ended up making a huge difference. So, when we apply this idea to online, if a student can click a button and uh, have either a thumbs up, thumbs down, or, or, you know, eh, like maybe thumbs uh, horizontal, that's a great way that, you know, Hey, if I'm an instructor and I see that 60% of my students have a thumbs down or a thumbs horizontal, I'm going to pause so I can spend more time to clarify any questions that people have before we move on. And if, You know, 100% of students are thumbs up. It's like great. Let's go through this section faster because everyone gets it. They're you know they're ready to move on. And so I think this is definitely something that Maven is thinking about for the future. It's not in our our near short term roadmap. There's so much else that we need to build that's uh, more immediate that instructors need. But I'm absolutely excited about giving instructors more tools to better understand their students so that they can be a better teacher
0: so this uh, last year especially because of you know the covid-19 pandemic and there was a lot of acceleration of um, uh, digital tools in multiple areas as well a lot of cohort based courses uh, really took off you know there's so many uh, folks running cohort based courses so Of course, Maven is very unique and uh, it has a tech stack as well. And there are wonderful people supporting it. And and the community is really raving for it. The funding has taken off. But do you consider that you're still in red waters? Is it very competitive or do you see, uh, you know, charting a different trajectory altogether?
1: Well, I think I'm super proud of the traction that we've had so far. We just hit our one year anniversary last week. And so the, the past year just completely flew by. We're still pre-product. So there's absolutely so many places where things can go wrong. I think with any startup who's only one year in, it's hard to say that we're locked in and, and there's nothing that, that could go wrong. I will say that in the past year, even though we're pre-product, so we were in private beta, we haven't launched our software yet to the broader public. We've already launched over $2 million in core sales. And we've had over fifty instructors, ten of which have made over hundred thousand dollars in their cohorts, and over thirty instructors who have made over ten thousand dollars in a single cohort. So that's really meaningful income for creators, and I think that's really really exciting. So you know, we're about twenty people now. There's still so much to do, so much. I mean. You can imagine, with all the founders that you talk to, uh, there's a ton to build. There's a ton to sharpen and improve, and we're really motivated to continue serving our creators, to serving to serve our instructors, and really bring on more people who maybe originally didn't think of themselves as someone who could teach a core-based course. Right? They, you know, previously didn't consider going into academia, being a professor, didn't consider being a teacher, but they have so much to share. And now if we give you the tools to be able to run a core-based course in a lot easier of a way without all the administrative overhead and the tech stack that you have to manage, we're hoping that a lot of subject matter experts are going to realize that core-based courses are now much easier and want to explore that.
0: One of the interesting element of cohort-based courses is the community that comes along with it, the, the community that is always there for you while you are there in that particular cohort. And even if you are just graduating out of the cohort, you still have that support of the community, right? So is there anything unique that you are trying to do in to build in these community engagement or maybe you know the, the tools and the templates around the community, et cetera? Because quite a lot of people have been used trying out Discord, Slack, And they're trying to engage with the community. But is there a secret sauce that you've cracked in? Just curious about it.
1: Community is an inherent part of core-based courses. They're completely baked in and one in the same with a core-based course, I would say. I think just given the fact that you are bringing together a group of people that have opted in in their free time to learn together and to pay a premium to learn together, that already gets rid of 90% of people who were tire kickers who you know, were just tourists looking around, not really serious. So the fact that, that core-based courses curate people who are like-minded of the same philosophy and, and the same values within a course already sets it up to be so much more community driven. I think that's one aspect. The other is we're looking at a lot of different ways to generate that sense of community. So I think the tooling is really only one part whether the tool is Slack or Circle or Harpy Chat or anything else, I think that's secondary. You know, that might be a spiky point of view given that we're a software company, but, but I think that, that there, there are so many creators who, who have built such a, a loyal following, who have built such an evangelical, excited community that want to connect with each other, that it's not so much, hey, is the tool that we're giving them to talk to each other? Is that how optimized is that tool? It's more of how do we create the culture of generosity within a community? This was so important in the Alt-MBA. The Alt-MBA, as a course, was entirely community-driven. We didn't spend a dollar on paid marketing until, I want to say, a year and a half in. Before that, it was entirely word-of-mouth driven. And even when we did do paid media, it was 10% of our marketing. The rest of the 90% was alumni telling their friends, It was students telling their coworkers, telling their spouses, telling their family members. We had people who got their sisters, brothers, mothers, fathers, children to do adult children to do the Alt-MBA, right? And so this word of mouth is really important for community-driven products, especially for courses. So how do you create this culture of giving back to the community, of generosity, of adding value? so that your students and your alumni are going to want to tell other people if you just try to upsell people all the time and you know try to trick people or try to use spammy tactics to say you know this price is going up tomorrow or this webinar is only going to be available for the next hour start watching it now you know we all know those internet marketer tactics that's not going to create long term community that's not going to create long term trust that hey, if I bring in these five people into this community, that you know you're not going to try this MLM, you know, spammy way of, of trying to sell to them, right? And so, especially with working professionals who are a lot of the market, student base for core based courses, it's very important to respect people's intelligence. I think respect the intelligence of your customer. I think that's super important. And when you do that, you're able to create a community where people are proud to say they are part of this group and then proud to loop in other people and bring them in?
0: I think um, I happened to um, get on a a call where Ollie from Antler had brought in, um, you know, Alex Lieberman from uh, Morning Brew. And we were were discussing about, um, you know, when when, um, content becomes a commodity, then the community is the differentiator. Because what happens is that on a digital spectrum, you'll find a lot of content which may be similar or maybe in the same range of, let's say, 60 to 70%, etc. Then any content that has a community wrapped around it and that community is really you know, vouching for that particular content and the leaders and the community members, etc., that really becomes a, a differentiator in the coming years.
1: Absolutely. I wrote an op-ed for Andreessen Horowitz's publication on this topic, that content is now a commodity, and therefore, community is what differentiates any experience, whether it's a course or something else. And when you think about you th- when you think about what consumers pay for, they pay for something that's scarce. If something is abundant and free or low cost, it's very hard to compete and charge a premium. So when you look at all the different places where one could learn something, there's the MOOC platforms, of course, so Udemy, LinkedIn Learning, Skillshare, Coursera, EdX. There's also YouTube. There's millions of videos on YouTube that teach you how to do something, right? Ton of educational content on YouTube. There's some crazy statistic that escapes me now, but the number of hours of educational content that's uploaded into YouTube every day is insane. And then you have more traditional forms of learning with higher education, continuing education, MBA, executive MBA programs. Uh, And then you have articles Right. Publications where there's high quality content, newsletters, there's amazing Substack newsletters that provide the same level of in depth analysis that, you know, industry analysts provide. So there's just so many sources of learning and a lot of it is free or low cost. And so, you know, 20 years ago, you could hang your hat on content. If you had great content, that was enough for you to stand out. But now there are so, and I also, actually, I also forgot accelerators and incubators. Right. Also, content, boot camps, more content. So now there's just so much competition that community is the differentiator. So I'll send you the link to that to take a look at your audience might like.
0: Sure. It could be that uh, death by content could be one of the headlines as well, because there's so much of content in the digital ecosystem. But I think you are a marketing genius, Fess, and I loved our conversations. So uh, what would be your some of the recommendations for the new age uh, digital entrepreneurs who are primarily working in the digital spectrum, right? A lot of uh, new business models have uh, started up, and I'm very long on SaaS. So the subscription economy is really um, accelerating the creator economy as well. So people are uh, generating amazing content through their personalized newsletters, through host platforms, through, like you said, Medium, etc. And they're charging a premium for the content that they are creating. Paki is a great content creator as well. So uh, what are the few of the advices that you would give to your fellow entrepreneurs or uprising entrepreneurs as well who are primarily operating in the digital spectrum?
1: The world is getting noisier and noisier. So we just talked about how within... Ed tech, there's so many different options with content becoming quantity, It's more and more important to figure out how you're going to stand out. And, you know, if you think about all the other companies or individuals who might be offering a similar service or who might be offering a similar product or who might have a similar background to you, there's thousands of people who could do something maybe similar to what you do. So the sea of sameness is a very real challenge. And the antidote to that is what I call a spiky point of view. That if you want to stand out, you have to have a spiky point of view. So what is that? A spiky point of view is basically an assertion that you have about your field of expertise that other experts might disagree with. So it's not having a hot take or a controversial stir the pot kind of comment just to just to get people riled up for the sake of it. But it's rather rooted in your expertise where there's good rationale and it's defensible. I'll Actually, I'll give an example of what's not a spiky point of view. It's not a spiky point of view is saying sales is about relationships. That doesn't teach your audience anything new. Most people already assume that sales is about relationships. That's kind of the default belief. So that's not spiky. But if you say that sales is not about relationships, it's actually about X. X might be your ability to challenge your prospect and teach them something they don't already know. That is a spiky point of view. So... Another example of a spiky point of view, a lot of people do marketing as a last step, right? You do the product, you make sure that the product is amazing, you do you know, research, you think about going to market, and then you tack on marketing at the end. So my spiky point of view is that that's too late. It's too late to put marketing right at the end. What you want to do is do it right at the beginning, that you need to think about marketing right from day one, because you need to think about who is going to buy this and why. And why would this be a no-brainer for them to spend their real cash money dollars on you or your product, your software, your SaaS company, etc. So by doing marketing in day one, you prevent all of these other problems that can happen downstream later on down the line. And that's why you need to think about it up front. So that's another example of a spiky point of view. So I think having a spiky point of view is so important, especially in competitive arenas where there's so many other options that your customers might have. And by having a spiky point of view, you are able to to snap your audience out of the, the same old, same old that they're hearing from everyone. You're doing something different. And you're also adding value to them by teaching them something that they don't already know.
0: Excellent. I think uh, the Maven course accelerator that you're starting from September 27th to October 15th, is that the third cohort, uh, uh, Wes? It's the fourth. It's the fourth. Oh, congratulations. And uh, definitely it's, it's you're teaching how to create cohort-based courses for creators. And uh, you would be definitely a mentor to a lot of, uh, you know, uh, first cohort or the second cohort and the third cohort members as well. So just out of curiosity, who was your mentor while you were navigating the entrepreneurial journey, if I may ask?
1: I have a spiky point of view about mentorship too, actually. So I think a lot of people think of mentors as these far away heroes that are many steps ahead of you who can give you wisdom and kind of guide you each step of your way in your career. And I've not really found that to be true. I think that most people that you would actually want to be mentored by are too busy to regularly carve out time to mentor you in the way that, that you want to be mentored. And I think a much better approach is to have either near peers or situational mentors. So, those two. So, what I mean by that, one with near peers, near peers are people who are going through the same things as you are, maybe a couple steps ahead, who are who recently solved the kinds of problems that you're trying to solve. So, if you're a series A company and you're trying to find product market fit, it might be a company that recently found product market fit. So, talking to a founder who was recently in your shoes, as opposed to talking to a seasoned entrepreneur who is 30 years ahead, who has sold their company and is now retired. Obviously, they'd built something up really great, but is you know they're not in the day-to-day anymore. So that's what I mean by near peers. I've learned so much in my career through near peers. The conversations that you have are, are much more relevant and timely and specific and concrete because this was something that they just recently went through. So that's one bucket. And then the other is situational mentors. So situational mentors—it's much easier to find situational mentors. These are people where you have a specific situation. You know, I might be dealing with—you know—how do I uh, work on this hairy issue with a direct report? You know, how do I have this hard conversation with them about their career path? Or how do I improve my sales pitch? How do I think about my go-to-market strategy? How do I think about my business model? You might have these situations that you are currently working on these decisions that you have to make and you find a situational mentor who is great at that thing and you talk to them about it and this might be one conversation it might be three but you don't expect it to be this everlasting bond and this everlasting relationship which is just too high of a bar for most people just too it's too much of a commitment too much of an obligation and so in this way you get what you need From the person who is best able to help you, that person feels great because they're able to just slot in and and give you some really relevant advice, but there's not this weird expectation of, you know, this has to continue forever. And so there's been so many situational mentors. Uh, A lot of our investors are people that I regularly talk to, to get great advice about go to market, about sales, about growing our platform, about hiring, about people management. So I highly recommend finding near peers and situational mentors.
0: Excellent. So find situational mentors, especially in the mentee and the mentor relationship equation, right? It's very bi-directional. So sometimes a mentee who is trying to scout for a particular mentor, they have to go an extra length and try to you know, bring in the value so that the mentor is on the same table as well. So um, definitely situational mentors is important. And do you think that uh, a lot of entrepreneurs in the current era have the access to these situational mentors because they keep on Uh, you know, going into meandering paths, but they do not have the access to these uh, situational mentors at the right particular point in time as well. Especially when you're sinking, you'd like to have a lifeboat, right? But at that point in time, if you do not have a, if you haven't surrounded yourself with a set of mentors, then you might be at risk of uh, sinking actually in the ocean as well. So any thoughts on those?
1: Yeah, I think with anything else with being a founder, it's about being resourceful. So, looking for these situational mentors, reaching out to them, convincing them to help you. I think so much of being a founder is convincing people to get on board. So, whether it's investors to get on board with funding your company, whether it's early employees to join a company where there's not even a product, or joining a company that's growing. You know, hiring is, is all a sales conversation. Finding mentors, I think, is is absolutely the same. So, I think making yourself someone that people want to mentor is one of the best things that you can do. And I think there's a lot that you can do there. So even your initial note to someone, making good use of their time by asking specific questions that you might want to go over, explaining why you're reaching out to them specifically, giving them options around scheduling around them. You know, a lot of times people will reach out to me and I don't have a lot of bandwidth being an operator myself to mentor, mentor others very actively now. But if they ask specific questions, in the note. Sometimes I can help via email, right? Or if they say, Hey, I'm totally happy to to schedule around you off hours, et cetera. Like, just let me know. Basically, whatever's easier for me. You can send me a voice memo if you want, right? So making it really easy for the other person to help you. I think these are all in the, the realm of sales skills, resourcefulness, where it applies to so many things, including finding mentors.
0: Thank you so much. That was super helpful. Uh, My last question to you is that uh, what are your favorite podcasts or books or any of the movies that you would recommend to our listeners?
1: I'm reading a book right now that I absolutely love. It's called High Output Management by Andy Grove. He was a former CEO of Intel. And Ben Horowitz, the founder of Andreessen Horowitz, one of Maven's investors, wrote the intro to the book. It's fantastic. And it's literally changing my life one page at a time. Like the amount of density of wisdom in that book is really insane. I think a lot of books these days could be 10 page blog posts that get turned into you know, <laughs> page books. So, so this book, I think was written in, you know, the, the eighties or nineties, but it's so well edited and it's so information rich and insight rich that I think it's absolutely worth reading for any founder, any operator, any people manager. And actually, even if you don't manage people, the book is, is technically about, you know, being a manager, but I actually think that reading it will make you a better employee too. You know, most of us are both managers and employees, right? Even me, right? Like as a co-founder with a CEO, Goggin, right? Like technically Goggin's my boss, right? We're very equal most of the time, but usually unless you're the CEO, you have a boss. And actually even Goggin with our board and our investors, he is responsible for reporting to them, right? So even he has a boss. So everyone knowing how to be a better manager and a better employee, I think helps an organization run. So regardless of your uh, actual title, I think it's, it's a great book.
0: Excellent. I'm actually betting on the fact that you will be a published writer as well, with the best-selling concept, because you come from the you know marketing uh, background. You've worked with Seth Godin, so I have no doubts that uh, you will be an amazing uh, you know best-selling writer. So yeah, I uh, wish you all the luck for your uh, upcoming endeavors as well, best. And looking forward to uh, interact with you in my coming days or a few months as well. Thank you for coming to our show. I mean, our listeners will definitely enjoy the conversations and some of the valuable nuggets of information that they can actually take and implement in their scheme of things as well. Because quite a lot of our listeners have been telling us that we want practical inputs, something that we can actually take it away and implement in our real lives. We do not want the 30,000 feet fluff, but we want the practical, you know, actionable pointers as well. So listening to an entrepreneur like you, definitely a lot of our entrepreneurs uh, within our community and ecosystem will really benefit. So thank you so much for your time. And I loved, I absolutely loved our conversations as well.